Amphipolis, Pennsylvania, they came to Thessalonica, whatever the synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went, went in to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scripture, explaining and demonstrating that, Christ, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preached to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and now a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. The Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out of the people. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the ruler of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and they, they, they are, these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay. They come ultimately to Thessalonica, where there's a synagogue. Thessalonica was the largest city of Macedonia, about 200,000 people. Not a bad city for that day and time. A very prosperous city. And um, Paul goes where first to preach? Synagogue. Um, that's where there would be Jews that are religious, spiritual, perhaps receptive. We'll see. And look at what Paul did as he preached in verses 2 and 3. What was his method? Reasoning from the scriptures. To tell them what? Evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Yes. So he preaches about Jesus, basing his sermon on the testimony of the scriptures. Those scriptures would obviously be which scriptures? Old Testament. Old Testament, yeah. The scriptures that the Jews had and knew and accepted. So he is trying to reason and present a, a reasoned argument that they ought to believe in Jesus. That, that's the theme of his preaching and teaching. Now, look at the results. What were the results of this preaching? Well, I mean, some were converted. Some were persuaded and converted. And among those, some includes a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So, some Jews, some Gentiles, special emphasis on women. Gentiles and Senegal? I think he's doing more than just preaching in the synagogue by this point, although there were Gentiles God-fearers who would sometimes come. Not even just proselytes. Some uncircumcised also would come to synagogue, and they would call God-fearers. They sort of believed in God, but they'd never been circumcised. And they would have been counted as Gentiles, but they were pretty sympathetic to Judaism. Um, Cornelius would be good yeah, at that. Okay, so you think he's probably not just preaching in the synagogue right now. Ah. He first came to the synagogue, but by this time he's preaching in both. That's my guess. Right. Yeah. Because it's a large number of God-fearing Greeks, although there may have been some God-fearing Greeks, so they may have all been in the synagogue. It's interesting that you have more emphasis on the conversion of women in the churches of Macedonia. Now, there's quite a bit of emphasis on women throughout Acts, but we particularly have that emphasis here. And from the inscriptional evidence, Macedonian women had a lot of uh, social influence. 
So it may be especially important. And he mentions a number of leading women. There were apparently in Macedonia, a lot of the women were really civic leaders. And so leading women would have been women of influence uh, there in Thessalonica. So some are persuaded. It wasn't everybody, though. Uh, verse 5, the Jews becoming jealous did what? <laughs> yeah, who do they use to form the mob? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They round up some of the low lives to do their dirty work. You know, get some of the rascals from the marketplace, form a mob, set the city in an uproar, and uh, attack the house of Jason, who evidently is one of the Christians. And they drag Jason and some brethren before the city authorities. And what do they accuse Paul and the brethren of doing? Yes. That's, uh, well, <laughs> I guess they had sort of, hadn't they? You know, that maybe not be such a bad thing to be said about you. If you turn the world upside down for the Lord, praise God. And, uh, and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus, of course. That's not a fair criticism, because they aren't talking about uh, a political king when they speak of Jesus as being king. Um, but they receive a pledge from Jason and the others and release them and the brethren immediately in verse 10 will send them away to Berea I'm not sure what this pledge was they received from Jason perhaps it was some sort of a bond guaranteeing that they'd send Paul and Silas away that's a guess don't know that for sure. But at any rate, the situation was volatile enough that Paul and Silas were sent away by the brethren to go on to the next city. So does that mean they <clears throat> pushed them away out of safety concerns, or more like a rejecting them? don't think it's rejecting them, but it's either out of safety concerns or perhaps Jason had given his pledge that he'd send them away. So it's not like they're falling away. No, I don't think so. In fact, you read in First Thessalonians how much Paul still valued these brethren. They were his pride and joy, his crown. He loved them and cared about them. So I don't think there's any rejection of Paul. Other comments and questions through verse 9? <clears throat> yeah. You know, Gab, I've often wondered this, and I, I, don't, I don't know if you'll know. I don't know if anyone will ever know, but this idea when it talks about in the first couple verses the idea of explaining and demonstrating that Christ, Christ is, Jesus is the Christ how would how would someone go about using the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is the Christ that's just hard for me to, to feel, I know it's possible I just I don't know how, how would you do that I mean there's a lot of passages that refer to this man that's coming but how would you prove that Jesus is him well I mean, look at some of the sermons that are recorded in the book of Acts. I mean, they look at like in uh, Acts 2, Psalm 16, Jesus was raised from the dead. Joel 2, Psalm 110. You know, in Acts 13, he uses some passages um, about... And, and, you know, so it's kind of a combination of saying, okay, here's what the scriptures teach about the Messiah, and here's what we know about Jesus. Sure. But would everyone know about... I mean, you could no, be. no, but that's what they're doing. They're teaching them 
and bearing witness about Jesus and showing how he matches up. I don't think they're assuming a knowledge of Jesus. I think they're actually telling about it. Uh, and, you know, you think, well, you know, preaching so difficult, man, even more difficult. I can imagine, I mean, we have all the information about Jesus. Sure. They didn't have any. They had to completely believe off what the apostles were saying. I don't know. That's just. so do we. Sure. Well, sure. I agree. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's amazing to me. It's, it's, I don't know. That's really difficult. Yeah. I agree. All right. Other thoughts? Okay. Um, next place. Still in Macedonia. Verses 10 to 15. The brother immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more, no- were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and, received, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So, the persecution sends Paul and Silas now to Berea. You know, there's a lot of persecution going on. How much are they, the persecutors, managing to, uh, you know, stifle gospel preaching? We're encouraging it. What are they doing? Spreading it. They're spreading it. Every time they try to stomp it out, it just goes somewhere else, and the gospel is spread more. Really, it's counterproductive what the Jews are doing. Uh, if they were trying to keep the preaching down, quit persecuting them, because all that's doing is just causing it to spread like wildfire. Um, so they come to Berea. And uh, where do they go in Berea? Yeah. Now, you really appreciate the attitude of these um, people in Berea. It said they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. We'll talk about that in a second. But look at what they did. They received the word with great eagerness. They were really willing to give Paul a hearing. They were willing to listen carefully to what he said, but they weren't gullible. What did they do with what Paul said? Uh, examined it. Uh, how examined they examined the scriptures to see if what they were saying matched up. Yes, they scrutinized it. They carefully looked at the scripture to see if what Paul said was true. Is it good to just gullibly swallow what somebody tells you? It's not. How do you know if it's true? They verified it. They checked it out in the scriptures. Every day they were searching the scriptures to compare what Paul was teaching with what the scriptures said. You know, if, if, if it's the truth, you can check it out. And the more you check it out, the stronger it will be. And... Sometimes people, people, you know, carefully examine the teaching, but they don't use the scriptures as the basis. These guys knew that the right place to go to find out whether this was true or not was to the scriptures. So they, they examine the scriptures every day to find out if it's true, then what do they do? 
in different beliefs. Yes. Once they know it's true, they believe it. Sometimes people find out it's true and they don't do anything about it. These believe, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men, we're back to the women emphasis here in uh, the churches of Macedonia. Now, why would we say that these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica? create a mob and drag them into <laughs> court. Well, not quite, Simple but close, way. verse 13. I mean, I, there's, there's a couple of, of things people, a couple of views that I've heard out which one's right, but people say that because they shared the scriptures, you don't see that that's a Lindsay that, or some people think that because Jason took this vow or whatever it was to send Paul away, that's something that the Thessalonians didn't do. There's, there's a couple of views on that. I got a better one. I think. Would you look at verse 4 and look at verse 12? What's the difference? What's the difference? They were persuaded to join Paul and Silas. That's not what I'm looking at. More man. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously the Thessalonians were... (laughs) That's what I'm looking at. Disregarded. Read verse 4 and verse 12. There's a. Thank you. Some and many. You see that difference? Oh. But look at the whole verse. Some of them, I think, in referring to the Jews are in the synagogue, and then a great multitude of Greeks. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing here. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. Here it's many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. As far as the, having a bunch of Greeks, you had them in both places. To me, the difference is, especially focusing on the Jews, especially focusing on the synagogue work and what they did. In Thessalonica, some of them believed. Some of them were persuaded. And Maria, many of them were. I think many of them were maybe because they were receptive to hearing and they searched the scriptures every day. You know, think about it this way. Who is more likely to believe? The person who hears the sermon and doesn't do anything about it? Or the person who hears the sermon and goes back to the scriptures to check it out? Go back to the scriptures and check it out and you find it's true. That's going to be a lot more convincing and going to move you a lot more than if you just hear it and you don't do anything about it. So I think their method of searching the scriptures every day to find out if it's true led many of them to believe. Not a big deal, but I suspect that may be the distinction. But then what happens? Do you wanna? Which Jews? The Thessalonian Jews chase them into, down in Berea and turn some of the people against them, stir up the crowds, and the brethren send Paul away to Athens. Silas and Timothy stay behind, but Paul gives them orders soon to come and join him in Athens. 
All right, comments and questions on the uh, gospel in Berea through verse uh, 15. You know, I was wondering that myself, and I think I've lost most of my maps out of the back of my Bible, so uh, somebody else may have to help me with that. How far was Thessalonica from Berea? I really don't know the answer to that. I probably should, but I don't have it in my notes. A little ways. It would be in Greece. I know. Yeah, I don't know. Twenty-five miles, is that what you think? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, maybe 25 miles. I don't know. I probably got that in my notes somewhere else, but I don't have it on that. Anything else in 15? I think sometimes people will, like if you're searching the scriptures to see what they're saying, whether it matches up, you know, they'll say that you have like a lack of faith or something like that if you don't believe right away. Faith is founded on facts. Yeah. We really shouldn't just gullibly swallow. That's not really an advantage. We just, oh yeah, I believe. We ought to be skeptical and check it out. You kind of worry about people that are too easy to convince. You know why? So easily convinced of lots of other things. You're exactly <laughs> right. If you can convince them too easily, what's going to happen when the next glib-tongued uh, person comes along? You know, they're going to be convinced back or to something else. You'd really rather have somebody who's like, hey, prove it. I'm going to look at this for myself. I want to see if this is really right. That person, once they're convinced, has conviction. The person who just swallows gullibly whoever comes along, really, I do worry about that. I'd rather teach somebody who's harder to, to reach who's, because they're checking it out and they demand proof than somebody who, I mean, I've seen people who, anything you say, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I believe that. Well, they don't have any depth. Is that, is that area? No. It's somebody uh, we know. Ah, okay. <laughs> All right. Other uh, questions or comments uh, in Berea? All right. Well, Paul moves on to Athens. Not a particularly pleasant place for him to be. 16 to 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked in him, in him as he was observing the city called Island. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who were conversing with him, some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and strangers living there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Alright. Well, how does Paul feel in Athens? Now, you know, I don't know what we would have felt. 
Maybe it wouldn't have bothered us like it did Paul, but for Paul, this is just very revolting and very disturbing. He's all these idols. Now, Athens, what do you know about Athens? Well, I mean, very woman, um, very human wisdom dependent um, in, to be completely honest, very sex oriented, very um, freaky oriented, and very, like I said before, probably the most, the biggest thing about Athens and about Greece was they were very dependent upon their own wisdom. They were very culture, sophisticated. Athens had been kind of the center of Alexander's Macedonian Empire. Now, Athens was not a very big city at this point, and it lost a lot of its population, but it still was kind of a place of philosophers and religious folks and, you know, people who got lots of ideas. You know, would gather in Athens. Of course, that fits right in with the idolatry. They, they worshipped all different kinds of idols. How do people today, how would they look at the idols, say, of a place like Athens? What do we consider those idols to be today? Cultural diversity. Yeah, but but if we saw the Athenian idols, we'd call it what? Athenian images and statues and so forth. To, to us, we view it as mythology, art. People go to see all these statues and gods and goddesses and, you know, the temples and things like that. Uh, you know, it's, it's great sculpture. It's great architecture. It's idolatry to Paul. You know, of course, part of that for us is that it's kind of, you know, past. But, uh, but Paul is just very disturbed. And remember, he's by himself at first. He doesn't even have you know, Silas and Timothy with him, and it looks to me like from 1 Thessalonians 3, when Silas and Timothy got there, he sent him back out. So I think Paul's dealing with most of this stuff by himself, and it's really hard. So where does he go to preach in Athens? Well, that's part of where he goes. He goes to the marketplace and preaches to the the philosophers and and just the people who are there, you know, who are listening to various ideas. Where else does he go? The synagogue for the Jews. So, kind of like he's done in other places, he's in the synagogue with the Jews, but he also goes to places where the, the Gentiles are. You know, the marketplace would be a place where people are and where they discuss ideas, where he can present his, his views. We don't really have things quite like that today. I mean, in Brazil, I mean, I see even, you know, in big public squares, preaching. You know, some guy have a microphone, a boombox of some sort, you know, that's probably not the right term, but a you know, speaker. And, and he'll just start, you know, he'll start preaching. Pretty soon he's got a crowd of people around listening to him. You know, that was that's common in some place. You, you know, I don't know, where could you go in Indianapolis and do that? Probably nowhere. I don't know. I mean, we don't really have a gathering place for people other than like the mall or something. They'd run you out of there. <laughs> and, uh, but but it, was, it was possible to do that here, and so Paul did. And uh, you've got the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who are talking with him. Now, the Epicureans and the Stoics are two, two popular Gentile alternatives to the Gospel. The Epicureans basically, way oversimplified, 
but believed in the philosophy of kind of eat, drink, and be merry. You know, the key to life is happiness. The Stoics believed that the key to life was being unemotional, unmoved by your emotions, sort of detached from yourself and things like that. Two philosophies, ideas about how to live your life. And how did they look at Paul? As a what? As a nut. Not quite, but close. (laughs) What do they call it? An idle babbler. Now, that's a really interesting phrase. In fact, do you have the same marginal note I do in verse 18? That is, one who makes his living by picking up scraps. That's what they're calling Paul. It's kind of like a bird. You know, picking up seeds of information here, there, and yonder, and kind of stringing them together. You know, he's sort of a retailer of secondhand scraps of philosophies. That's the way they're looking at him. So he's grabbed a few ideas here, there, and yonder and strung them together and he's, he's babbling on about them. Because, well, he said, they say he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, of strange gods. Paul? Now that kind of surprise you? That they called Paul somebody who is preaching strange gods? I thought Paul only preached one God. What do they think he was preaching? But why strange gods? I think he says in the context. What do they call the gods? Jesus and the resurrection. They thought those two different gods he was preaching. Or maybe a god and a goddess. You know, the god Jesus and the goddess resurrection. It's like, whoa, they didn't get it at all, did they? Wow. You know, Paul preaches and they think he's preaching these two gods they never heard about before. So, you know, Paul's got his work cut out for him just to get them to understand, much less accept what he's saying. And so they take him and they bring him to the Areopagus. Now, there's a question mark about what the Areopagus means. It could mean this council, this town council that meets together. Although sometimes it means the place, the hill where the council met. I think it's probably better to see this as the council particularly because of verse 34 where he talks about Dionysius the Areopagite that is a member of the council and in verse 22 he stands in the midst of the Areopagus probably not he stood in the middle of the hill but he stands in the midst of the council this is a group that comes together um, for public policy and they really want to hear this new teaching in fact the Athenians in general were prone to intellectual fads They love to hear the newest wrinkle on various philosophies and religions. They're more attracted maybe to novelty than the truth. And and this is novel. This is something newfangled. We want to listen to this. We want to know what you're preaching, Paul. You know, let's hear this one. So, I don't know. Paul's about to preach a sermon here to this council. Do they strike you as the people most likely to be receptive to Paul's teaching? I don't think so. They're too intellectual. They're too disparaging. 
they're too like they're more curious uh, for information than they are for something that might affect their life. You know, to them, this is all just one big speculation. It's all just, you know, wow, it's cool hearing all these different teachings. You know, they're not taking it seriously in their life. All right, comments and questions through verse 21. same sermon he preached, say, in Acts 13 to the Jews in the synagogue. These guys are a long ways from understanding what the Jews in the synagogue understood. He's going to have to try to speak to them in some sort of language that they can relate to. So let's see how he goes about this in 22 to 31. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to man that all everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Think about what you have to do if you're teaching somebody. 
you know, you have some things that you want the person to understand. Where do you have to begin? Wherever they are. Why do you have to begin wherever they are? <clears throat> I mean, as Callie Gavon's been in school, you know, you can do certain things to build the blocks up to get to a higher point. Um, you know, I always thought of it as, like, as a tree. I was talking to a guy one time. But I had this friend, it's a girl that, um, she was on a swimming team, and she had just become a Christian, and which was a great set, but she was on a swimming team, and she's wearing clothing, and it wasn't very good. And he, he's like, you know, should I confront her on that? And, and, and I told him, I said, well, I said, here's what I think. I think that if you confront her on that, and she understand it, you might want to expect that, because she's not to that point yet. You know, a lot of times we need, we, we and he did, and he talked to her, and she ended up changing. But sometimes some people, we want to get to the branches instead of get to the root of the problem. Uh, and I think some of the interesting to build up what they need. Yes, I think that's true. Think about this. Except for Ryan, perhaps in here, maybe a couple others, probably Ariel. Uh, what if I started talking to you about the techniques of integration? And, you know, using uh, trigonometric functions to determine the area under the curve and things like that. You guys relate to that? No. no. <laughs> you do, don't you? Do you, Yeah, right. she's shocked. I know what you're talking about. You've heard of that before, but you wouldn't know I how to do it. I studied it last year. I don't remember Okay. You guys don't know anything about that, do you? I have no clue. Yeah. You don't even know what my language is. Do you understand that, Tasha? Okay. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. What if I just started going to this lecture to teach you these techniques of integration? You don't know what I'm talking about. Does it make any sense? What's a technique of integration anyhow? What's integration? Well, what if I tell you, well, integration, it's just kind of the, uh, the inverse function of uh, the differentiation. Does that help you a lot? <laughs> yeah. See? So what do I have to do if I want to teach you guys techniques of integration? Well, I'm going to have to build up. I'm going to have to start with, you know, some more basic concepts. You guys have heard of functions, haven't you? And I could start working my way from functions to, you know, teaching you some other kinds of functions you've not heard of before. And I don't know, Ryan would do much better than I would. I'm kind of at the limit of what I have studied, and I don't remember how to do it very well. If you asked me to integrate something at the moment, I couldn't do a thing. Uh, but I have done it. Uh, but you guys wouldn't know what I'm talking about. So you either have to start where somebody's at, or you lose them. It's not like we're worried we're going to offend somebody. I mean, sometimes we're like, well, they're not ready for this yet because they won't like it. Well, I don't know about that. These guys didn't like this, for the most part. It's not that Paul was worried about, you know, he's going to step on somebody's toes. It's just like, you know, if he starts preaching to them and quoting a bunch of, a bunch of, a bunch of passages out of the Old Testament about the Messiah, what's this audience going to understand about that? You know, they don't know anything about that. It won't relate to them. So, if you're going to teach somebody, you do have to start wherever they're at and build a bridge. That's kind of hard in Athens. <laughs> what can you start with? <laughs> they can build some sort of a bridge. What does Paul start with? One of their idols. Yeah, he starts with one of their idols. You know, they have a lot of idols. So I know all about that. Which idol does he start with? Um. Yeah, there's this altar to the unknown God. 
So I, I see you're very religious, guys. <laughs> That's about as complimentary a thing as he can say. He says, you've got this altar to the unknown God. That's a way he can talk about the Lord. So well, I'm just going to tell you about this unknown God you've got the altar to. You didn't know about him, but I'm here to tell you about him. I think that was pretty sharp. They could relate to that. If they'd have known about the unknown God, they'd already put his name on the altar. <laughs> you know, so Paul can give them information. And uh, I think in verse 22 and 23, what he says, he chooses his words pretty carefully. He's not offending them in what he says, but he's also not implying that he agrees. He's just sort of starting here, says, okay, let me tell you about it. And now he's going to give them some information on this unknown God. Wow, look at what he tells them. What does he tell them about God in verse 24? What's the first thing he tells them about God? Yes. He made everything. This is the God that created all things. What else do you learn about God in verse 24? All right. You, he, he doesn't stay in one place. And furthermore, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's not only the creator, he's the ruler over everything. Whoa. That's impressive. In verse 25, what does he say about this God? He doesn't need you. You need him. This God doesn't depend on us. We depend on him. Now, for their idol gods, they wouldn't have even existed if it hadn't been for these guys making them. And and their idea was even like, uh, at least for many of the idols, what did the idols eat? The idol gods, what did they eat? Did you know the idol gods had an appetite? Well, you talking about what they offered them, or you talking about what they ate in Greek mythology? Well, I'm saying what's their concept of what they ate. They ate the sacrifices. You know, so the reason that the pagans offered sacrifices is so their gods didn't starve and get upset with them. <laughs> well, see, it's not like that with the real God. He doesn't really need us. You know, he's not hungry. And if he got hungry, he could take care of it. He wouldn't really need us, you know, to feed him. And that's the point he makes in passages like Psalm 50 and things like that. You know, I don't really get hungry, but if I did, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine, I could probably feed myself. You know, so, so he's talking about a God that's so different in that, you know, man serves God, um, but not because God needs anything. God doesn't need... In fact, God's the one who gives life and breath and all things. God is the giver, not the receiver in this. And uh, then in verse 26, God made all the nations. He decreed the history. He set up the boundaries of the nations. All the nations are in God's hands. He's talking about a God that is so different from anything they'd ever thought about. This unknown God, they really need to get to know. 
it's a it's a pity they haven't known him because he blows the whole categories out of the water for gods. He's a god like they've never thought about before. Would you consider this to be something that you would expect the people to just really latch on to and love to hear? Not these people. Because this is presenting a concept of God totally different from what they accept. Paul didn't beat around the bush. Paul didn't say, well, you know, I want to tell you about a God who created some stuff. And he's the Lord of a few things. And he can do some stuff for you. You don't always have to do... You know, he doesn't water it down and present a compromised version of God. He gives them both barrels of what the true God is really like. But then, after saying, he is the great God, he's the creator, he's the Lord, he doesn't need anything, he rules over the nations, that just shows you the greatness, the exalted nature of God. Then look at what he says in verse 27. What did God want men to do? To seek him. He wants a relationship with men. He's not far from each one of you. This great God is near. He's close. He says in verse 28, In Him we live and move and exist. You know, our very being is by God and in God. He said one of your own poets has said, We are His offspring. You know, we're his children. So the great transcendent God is a personal God who wants us to be his children. And he finally says, so don't think the divine nature is something that you can create by art. You know, throw away the idols and turn to the true God. Comments and questions through verse 29. How did their poets say that? Like they were referring to God. Yeah, I don't know. I've forgotten if I know who they were referring to. I don't know if they were referring to one God or another. I think it was Epimenides. Okay. Keep talking. Okay. Slow reader. Verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance. Now, what does that relate back up to? Yeah, this unknown God that they worship in ignorance. Well, God used to overlook those times of ignorance, but now God is declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. You know, God's not overlooking the ignorance anymore. He's calling us to repent, and why? He's going to he's, he's got a day he's going to judge men by Jesus, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You know, so God raised him from the dead, and he's going to judge us by Jesus. You better repent. You better turn back. Now, 
he's, he's preaching to a Greek audience. Greek philosophers. Do you know what the Greek philosophers taught about matter? About your body and material things? They basically told, taught that matter was corrupt. And that our goal was to get rid of our bodies. So we could be pure spirit. Because the body is bad. When he talks about raising the dead, that does not fit Greek ideas. You know, the thing that impresses me about this sermon, he does start with common ground, where else are you going to start? But he does not hesitate to tell them things that they wouldn't like and that contradict their beliefs. He's not like trying to sweet talk them and say a bunch of stuff that they wanted to hear so that they'll like what he says. He's very directly dealing with some of their misconceptions. Comments? I think you're right, Anita, but they note seems to indicate that whatever God gave them the idea of fertilization, the idea of, uh, of, of, a, of a womb that, that has a lot of, of just the idea of the, the human race being fertile, that was who they were referring to because that was the God that gave them the ability to have kids. Okay. I think that was a committed But also another, another comment is that you kind of referred to what, in, in history, I always found kind of Greek culture fascinating. I don't know why, but just, just the idea. Well, how they I don't either. And, and, and all, and all, I guess all the gods and what they thought. I don't know. I just, I just find that fascinating. But just the idea of when it, when it says that he is the god of the earth and the sky you know, and the earth and the heaven, just the idea of everything. Um, you know, the Greeks had so many different gods. They, they made each, each create part of creation different gods. And even their, the, the greatest god they had which is Zeus, you know, the greatest god, is the god of the sky. Um, and even the one before that would have been Kronos, who is the god of time. Um, those are the two most powerful things they could see. And he was a god that controls all those things. Every every god they could think of was fulfilled in this god. And so, in, in some ways, it seemed almost unbelievable to them um, that there was a god that could control all these things. And because they put so much of a humanistic characteristic to these gods and made them so, so much like them. Uh, having all these affairs and they had to have this type of food. Well, a God that didn't depend upon food and, and, and all these things that they themselves would depend on and the fact that they made themselves out to be gods in our lives didn't make sense what they saw. Uh, and so it's just amazing this God that the Paul preached didn't depend upon these things like we do and, and could have all these things. Uh, it's just a really amazing thing. Definitely. Other thoughts? So what, what does he say, meaning when he says, overlook the times of ignorance? Well, he let it go on. You know, he didn't really come down on them and destroy them for these beliefs. But now there's a day that's been appointed where they will be. So I don't know, I don't know what else to say about that. Just that God didn't do anything about it. He let it go on. What? Well, that's just part of God's patience and long-suffering, I would say. I mean, it's not like they didn't have a law before. I agree with that. But he, but, but look at what they did, and he let it continue. So let it continue doesn't necessarily mean he agreed with it. No, I don't think he agreed with it at all. I love when he was supposed to say, well, you see, this means that these people went to heaven because God winked at it. Well, I don't see that as no, no, I didn't kick them off the planet. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, 
And in fact, I mean, if you look at this passage, would you say that world religions and the worship of other gods is okay? No. I mean, this is just saying just the opposite. We serve a God that transcends whatever else that, that we're looking at. Um, and, and we shouldn't be overly impressed by worldly philosophies. They're stupid. God knows better than the world does. You know, you're, you know, I don't know, what did you have? Do you have any uh, social science stuff in college, right? Mm, I had psychology, but I didn't go there very often. <laughs> um, you know, some of this stuff, my, my exposure, you know, I mean, I was kind of naive growing up. And uh, in 11th grade, I took a humanities class, and the teacher just loved philosophy. So we studied all sorts of Greek philosophers, Plato and some of those things. Those guys were messed up. It was like, what? You know, Plato was, we're not really real, we're just the shadows on the cave wall. That's an oversimplification, I'm sure. But the full version wouldn't make any more sense. You know, don't be don't be overly impressed by worldly wisdom. It can't hold a candle to what God knows. You know, I mean, the best the Greeks had to offer were nothing compared to the true God and what he teaches us. So don't ever think that you're at a disadvantage because you don't know all that worldly philosophy. Why? Right, anything else? In 29 saying being like you you people being the offspring of God or all of us being the offspring of God then it would make sense not to think that the divine nature the God himself would be even less than us in stone and gold and right. and silver. Yeah, yeah, definitely God doesn't have that kind of nature. Yeah, one of your own says that we're the offspring of God. Why then are you making God yeah. a rock? Yeah, exactly. When when we are living and breathing people. And personal people. Yeah, so God would be even more than that if we're the offspring of God. Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> and I wonder if 30, I don't know if there could possibly be an, another... Some other meaning there, just the way he starts it with therefore. You know, you, you are the offspring of God, therefore God's declaring that all men everywhere should repent. I don't know if the... That's the idea. Overlooking the times of ignorance well, I think would be like, mean, just let's just skip that or let's... Well, it's like a contrast. He let you go on before. He didn't really put a stop to it. But now! He's declaring everybody everywhere must repent because there's a judgment they come. You're not gonna, you know, before it just he just kind of let it continue, but it's not gonna continue for for now or now because God's God's appointed the day for for the world to be judged. All right, what about yeah, Shane? I, just, I think it's only and it's really a lesson for me is you know Paul wasn't an uneducated person. And he was educated. We know that from the fact that he was as high up as he was at such an age. And, and it was a thing. He was very educated. Uh, but these were the leading philosophers of the time, most likely. And if I was in a situation that was very intimidated, it'd be really hard to stand up. Not only were you alone, 
and there's a bunch of people that are completely going to disagree with you, and you know that full well by the time you open your mouth. Um, but he still preaches. And like you said, he doesn't just preach in a watered-down, if everyone loves God, say yay, type of way, but he very sternly and very strongly states the facts. Sure. Uh, and, and that's a lesson for me. I'm, I'm much more willing to, uh, and I think in some ways this, this is right in some situations. Obviously, Paul didn't preach this way to everybody. Um, but to just stand up and say, well, this is the way it is, and not do it, and, and take comfort in, in who his God was. He knew his God was greater than these, these rocks that they were worshiping, and that's when he took his comfort in. Amen. All right, so let's look at the reaction, 32 to 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and but some men joined him and believed. Among whom were also Dionysius, the Aripagite, and a woman named Demiris, and others with them. Okay. Well, what's the reaction? Some of them mocked and laughed at it. Some of them wanted to hear about it again. And some of them joined him. But does it seems to be does it seem like he had as good a reception in Athens as he did other places? No, it certainly doesn't. And you know, did he do a worse job in his sermon? No. It was a fine sermon. They just weren't as receptive. There weren't as many people to be moved by the gospel. Now, how many places has Paul already gotten run out of town? Do you read about him getting run out of town in Athens? You know, he's more likely to get run out of town where people really care and some turn to the Lord and some turn away from the Lord. Here, this is more an object of intellectual curiosity. They don't get... They aren't for it, and they don't get riled up against it. You know, I think that's often the way that goes. If if, if you got, you know, people really care, then they're going to really oppose it if they don't agree. Here, nobody really cares. It's just kind of like, well, there's another, you know, seed picker. Just a fat. Yeah, that's 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 weird. He, he sure does have an odd doctrine, doesn't he? You know, two new gods. But he's to defend against one person. The group is hard to defend against. Like more That's true. When he doesn't have much response, nobody's going to be jealous. <laughs> Jesus would have trouble stirring up a, a mob here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not stir-upable. <laughs> yeah, good point. It's, all, it's kind of funny, you know, how he says this. Uh, this is just curiosity. But in verse 34 he says, But some men joined him. That's the masculine word. But some men joined him and believed, among whom... Also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman. And Demaris and others with them. So there was a woman among the men that uh, joined it. And an Areopagite. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Whatever that means. You know what I find funny about the guy named Dionysius? Uh, this is a fellow like Greek mythology, but Dionysius is the name of a Greek out of wine. I don't know. I just find out I wanted to change the name. He named after a Greek guy. I don't know. <laughs> other thoughts and comments? Yes. Um, I don't, I, like, it's weird because in verse 34, 
it says it names two people. Yeah. And it says and then others. Yeah. Why can't you just name two and why them? I don't know. Maybe the rest were all men that joined. I don't know. Dionysius was a man, though. Yeah. But he was one of the Areopagite, which may have been... Well, not of this, of this council. Yeah. These two people may have been the most important people that joined the group. I don't know. We, we often see a couple of people as being sort of outstanding. We may mention them and, and the rest of the brothers. <laughs> Almost give them credibility, somewhat. I mean, the idea... <laughs> Right, so this is just Luke's account. I mean, he's just writing, you know, about some of the people who turned to the world. In the previous section, you can really see the wisdom in the things that Paul brings up. You know, if he had just had only the beginning and only the end, where he said, I can see you're religious, the God that you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you now. And he says, you have to repent. Which is true, but, you know, they might say, well, my God says I don't have to repent, and that's a lot easier, so why would I want your God? If they didn't understand the sort of supreme God he was. Or they could say, um, well, what if I decide not to? You know, doesn't he need me? You know, we, we should negotiate. He really doesn't need us. Yes. Good point. Other thoughts? Alright, well why don't we start in chapter 18 next week? <laughs>